Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is the mix of two words, authos, which means the self, and entos, which means inside. Authentic really means the inside self or the true self. So, if you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our show, we talk to leaders who went through the process of clearly understanding their true selves and articulating their core values. These leaders make decisions and take actions that are always consistent with those values. Our guests take us through their journey of self-discovery, share their successes, and are candid about their challenges. And because authentic leadership requires engaging your whole self, we also talk about how their personal passions intersect with and support their professional life. Our first guest is Raj Kapoor. This interview was recorded in July of 2020, so keep in mind the historic context. Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic is very present in several points of our conversation. Raj is currently the Chief Strategy Officer at Lyft and Head of Business for the Self-Driving Division. He's a serial entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. In fact, Raj joined Lyft from Mayfield Fund, where he was the managing director that led the first VC investment in Lyft. Prior to Lyft, he was the co-founder and CEO of Snapfish, one of the first online photo printing sites. Snapfish was acquired by HP in 2005. After that, Raj became the CEO and founder of FitMob, which was acquired by ClassPass in 2015. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground. We talked about how the values of the founders set the tone for Lyft and its vision of making the world better through transportation. Raj goes deep into how these values influence the way choices are made daily at Lyft, and how having such clear values guided how Lyft navigated the pandemic. We also spent a lot of time on Raj's personal journey as a leader, how we evolved and understood his own strengths and weaknesses, how he navigated a complex situation in the sale of FitMob to ClassPass, and why, after twice being the CEO and founder of companies, he is now happy and excited in a position where he's part of a team and not the number one person. Raj is also passionate about giving back, so we talked about how that impacts his business choices. And as we talked about giving back, he shared his experience getting COVID-19 and how that led him to start worldwithoutcovid.org, an non-for-profit that connects patients and volunteers with COVID-related clinical trials and research projects. As in any episode, we finish with a discussion on his personal passions and, my favorite, the business cliché or expression that drives Raj crazy. We're here for the first episode of Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. I'm very excited to have here Raj Kapoor. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Lyft, and I'm thrilled that he's my first guest in this series. And when I first met him, he was known as Indian Elvis. (laughs) He was dressed in a 70s Elvis costume playing a show with the band of the same name at our business school. Raj has been somebody who has had a pretty successful business career. He founded one of the first online printing, photo printing businesses and sold it, then went on to be a venture capitalist and uh, um, lead a couple of other entrepreneurial ventures. And as I said, now he's the chief strategy officer in Lyft. Hi, Raj. Um, Hi. How are you doing? Doing as good as you can be doing right now. Great. What I want to start our conversation with is what's your definition of authenticity? And throughout your career, how did you sort of like come to define and find your authentic self, both in the workplace and outside? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, authenticity is the source of happiness, first of all, um, because unless you are authentic, it, it's, it's a friction point because you're not being you. And so going to the definition, it's really being, acting, and saying who you really are versus what you think others want you to be. Being authentic is really doing it from a place that is devoid of fear of judgment and devoid of fear of reprisal. Now, I was careful there to say that I think it's devoid of fear, but there will always be people judging. There will always be people that make uh, statements about you, but not having the fear uh, that you will be impacted by that and remaining your, who you really are um, in doing it. There probably have been moments throughout your career when like, staying authentic um, has required to make some scary choices or take some scary decisions. What are some of those moments? Yeah, you know, um, as I've uh, progressed in my career, I've learned, I think, in many cases, the hard ways of what I'm really good at and what I'm not so great at, what other people are better at. And it may not be that, oh, I'm not good at it, but it is certainly there are people out there that would do a better job in a certain area. Uh, and I think when you first come out of business school, like we did, bright eyed, bushy tailed, and you think you can do everything and take on everyone. And uh, I learned that, uh, you know, when it comes to, for example, uh, people management, I'm all about execution, getting things done strategy. But when it comes to uh, how do you motivate um, a thousand people and get them coordinated and communicate to them seven times to tell them the same message so that everyone's going in the right direction, uh, that's probably not something I'm great at. There's people that can manage thousands of people in an organization better than I can. And again, I learned that both by trying and failing um, and also by understanding and doing some work on myself on to understand what really makes me happy. And what am I doing because it's authentically who I am versus I think everyone wants me to be a, a, a big company people manager. And that's what I need to try to be. And what are some of the moments where you had sort of like, is there a specific decision or moment or time that you can recollect in your career where you had to come face to face with that? When I was looking at Lyft, so this was like after I, I sold my last company, FitMob, it merged into ClassPass. And that's a whole other story about vulnerability that we can get into later. Yes. I was looking at some companies to join, some of the large tech companies that are here in Silicon Valley. And I, I knew enough people where I was able to go in there and, and figure out what are the, the positions. And I realized, I think there, I'm not sure I brought that much compared to other people in managing large, large teams. Mm. There wasn't even a role really at Lyft, but I knew the CEO and the other co-founder really well because I'd invested in them when I was at Mayfield. And we made a position up. And it felt like a very authentic position because it was about strategy. It was a small team. It was trying to chart the course of where to go, but not necessarily being responsible for running 200 cities and making sure that the pricing every day is competitive with Uber and managing uh, supply and demand details with process and, and, uh, and with large groups of people that are distributed. Like Those are the types of things that I, I knew that if I, if I took that on, it wouldn't really be my authentic source of happiness nor do I think I would be the best person to do that. Um, and so by looking at other opportunities where those were offered, 
Um, but then by uh, looking at Lyft, where I was able to craft it uh, because of the trust that was there and authenticity and vulnerability come with trust. And I had a, a level of trust with the CEO because he knew, he knew me pretty well and I knew him pretty well. And so we knew each other's strengths and weaknesses. So it was a very quick process to get to a place that I felt I could be authentic. What were some of the biggest challenges that Lyft faced when you joined? I joined, uh, I would say like October of 2016, and there were lots of challenges. We were a fairly small in terms of market share compared to Uber. It was hard to make a dent. You know, we were under-resourced and we were in this cycle where you, we were scaling as a company compared to any other tech company, but compared to Uber, it was like always a shadow. And could we hire the best people because we were number two? We were considered number two. And after I came, and I don't take any credit for this, but there's a lot of things that happened. One is that there was delete Uber. And I think the public was demanding more out of companies and was demanding companies to be authentic and companies to, to stand for a purpose. And I think our founders have always been authentic about that. And so their natural personalities came out and a incredible virtuous cycle began where I saw we were able to win customers with customers. We got more scale with scale. We were able to attract incredible talent that was really a plus that weren't looking at us as a number two player, but we were looking at us as the leader. And then with that talent, we were to build better products and attract more customers. And it, that virtuous cycle just hit and our market share grew. Um, and so I would say that getting a company that's kind of in somewhat of a rut, but to get out of that and go into the virtuous cycle was a, was a great learning just to observe that and you know playing a little role in that as well along the way. At the time that you joined uh, Lyft, I think obviously Uber was the, uh, as you mentioned, the you know well-established number one. They had some reputation issues at the time, and I think you took some Lyft took some pretty bold positions uh, in terms of moving. Like I remember, 2016 is when uh, um, you had the free rides for people who didn't get to the polls, right? Yeah. And, and you've taken some pretty strong point of views as it relates to the impact on the environment, et cetera. How is that decision process working? And, you know, how are those choices made? You know, it's very interesting as I look at that. And another decision that I think was important was in, I think it was 2016, but it was basically after Trump became president and the whole DACA situation. Immediately, within 24 hours of seeing that threat and risk, the founders and a group of people uh, in the company got together and decided to be one of the first companies, we weren't looking to someone to follow, to donate a million dollars to the ACLU from rides because we connected right away with immigrants and a lot of our drivers are immigrants and the hardship that they were going through and wanted to help them. How this happened is interesting because it really, at its core, <coughs> it's a founder-driven company and it came from the founders. They have strong beliefs that we're here to improve people's lives with transportation, not just provide transportation. Our approach to working with cities has been collaborative since day one. And we've been focused on trying to bring about transportation equity because it's so important. I think it was authentic to the founders so that when the moment came, it happened very quickly. But it also happened quickly because they set up an authentic mission that attracted people that were also aligned with that mission like myself. So for the people that were there, 
there was there wasn't a lot of debate. It was it was just a natural thing to do, which wouldn't be the case if you hired a bunch of mercenaries, as an example. And that's that's actually a very interesting point. You know, as you think about leading a broader group of people and the people that you bring in and then, you know, that sort of adapt to the culture of the company in in a, you know in an environment where you're growing rapidly and with a you know and it's sort of at the time a pretty uh, tough. How is the process of maintaining the culture and and bringing the right people in and making sure that they're aligned with the mission and making sure that the mission is transmitted through the whole organization? So I think um, it starts with if they see that there are authentic actions that the company has taken, it attracts a certain type of person that's there. They see it when the interviewer brings up questions around, you know, what is the purpose that you're going for in your life? What, what do you think the word improving people's lives means? What, what do you think are the concepts behind that? So, you know, when you, when you probe and ask for um, how people feel at a deeper level, you get true answers um, into doing that versus just putting up posters on the wall um, or, you know, making statements like, oh, we feel for X, Y, Z uh, group of people that have uh, been not treated well. And for the next two weeks, we're going to have a sale. You know, like that's not what we, what it's about. Um, so I really think it starts with the actions um, and it just flows through the organization because of the type of people that you have, and then it almost becomes an organism that continues to live and thrive based on the collective rather than any sort of particular policy or particular person. How do people contribute to the culture? Is there a two-way loop from sort of like the founders are setting the culture and the direction, and then how do the rest of the organization contribute to it? Yeah, I think it's because the founders set out a, a very strong invitation to make a difference and that there is a very good line of communication for new ideas around that to happen quickly, like the get out the vote where we provided free rides. Then at some point we decided that this is big enough, we need to actually create a team around social impact. And then it's also the, the founders setting some ground rules, which everyone can get aligned around. So for example, we're not about just donating money to charities um, and doing that. There's lots of philanthropists out there. How can we utilize our asset, which is rides, to bring about improvements? You know, so that's why we focus around, okay, in, during COVID, uh, was there a need for essential transportation? Absolutely. Uh, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's getting frontline workers to jobs, um, getting people for testing, um, getting senior citizens uh, safely transported in that area between emergency transport, but non-emergency transport, but still critically important. So there was, I think it's, um, it's really focusing on what you're good at and then looking at all the ways that you can tap into it. But if it's free for all, then it also do, loses focus and um, and it becomes really hard because then it's like there's a thousand ideas and you want to do all thousand and there's no way to filter. You know, you mentioned COVID. Obviously, that was a, a, a you know, for, for, a, for a company that is focused on transportation at the time when people are all locked uh, in their houses that, you know, you, you guys were facing with challenges that 
were probably larger and different than, than most of other companies. What was the process internally to face the challenges and, and go through some of the hard choices that you had to make? So, you know, it hit us pretty hard, pretty quickly, just like shelter in place hit our lives quickly. Um, the, the need to move around uh, dramatically dropped off and the desire to go into someone else's car, which up till now was a big selling point. Um, but now instilled a lot of fear as to what the driver, the passenger um, may be infected. So it happened very quickly and we had to prioritize what was most important. And the first thing we prioritized is health, health of uh, the drivers, health of the passengers, and even health of the employees, because we have a, a big ground operation, vehicle service centers, driver service centers. Uh, that are there. And so we had to quickly stabilize that uh, and put into, but at the same time, it was very hard to do that because as you probably have seen, every week the information was different. Masks, no masks. Um, and, and so, you know, one thing that hasn't consistently changed is washing your hands, but it's a little bit hard to do that in a car. But we, we did implement and got to a point of stability um, and put out health guidelines, um, did a lot of work in understanding what, was in, what, what does our consumer want to feel safe. Um, and then also, at, in parallel, prioritized right away that there were essential transportation needs that the city needed to function. What are they? And, and because we have a connection to all the city local governments, we are able to collaborate with them quickly and figure out where, they, where, where we were needed. And they also uh, collaborated with us to allow us to continue to operate as an essential service. So that was important too, is to maintain that status so that we could serve the community. And really, you know, during that time, you have to suspend um, thinking about money uh, for some time where the priority is around health and essential service. And then, of course, you have to look right away from a business perspective and say, okay, business has been uh, affected. Liquidity is king. How much cash we have? We're lucky that we went public. We raised money, um, and we decided to raise a little bit more in in the pandemic as well to ensure our future. And we are also able to look at our cost structure and uh, take some cost out of the structure because we realized we didn't know how long this was going to be there. Um, we have enough to last, but we wanted to make sure that the the, the cost structure can support <clears throat> even a, a longer term reduction uh, in demand. And so we took all those actions, but the, the timing of it was really important. And what was really important is also a lot of communication because we're dealing not just with our business, but we're dealing with um, a team and employees that are afraid for their life and have a lot of uncertainty. And then you have the second order effects like how can, you know, some people are having a really difficult time working at home. They're not set up to work at home. Um, they have uh, children to take care of. Their children are going to school. So how do you adjust what needs to be done when you do that? Um, it's a lot of hard work and listening um, and adjusting uh, and communicating and over-communicating on, on what needs to be there. So we're not out of the woods, um, but we have seen a recovery week over week, um, but we're not recovered fully. And I think as we look, even as a country, we're not out of the woods and you know we're experiencing a increase again 
I one could not, I would not call this phase two. I think this is the same phase. It's just an increase again. And, uh, and, and so we have to brace ourselves for a lot of uncertainty. You know, you've, you've talked a lot about communication with your employees and, you know, as you're making this decision, how do you think the fact that you have been value driven from the beginning and the trust that I assume that has built with your team throughout your organization has helped you with the, in the communication process? Every few weeks, we're, we're measuring how our employees are feeling about Lyft, how are they feeling about their, their job, their, um, how are, and one of the things we added was, how are we helping you through this pandemic? And how are we doing helping the community through this pandemic? Because that is our mission. Um, and we really use that as a guidepost. Um, I'm happy to say it was rated very highly. Um, and, but it was really, again, goes back to the culture that's there of we're all about improve, improving people's lives. So this is not a time to give up or say, we need to change. It's a time to actually buckle down and say, this is what we're here for. So that was inspiring to see what happened out in the field in doing that. And in fact, I just saw, you know, where we had to furlough some, some of the field operations because there, there wasn't enough activity for them. And now that activity is resuming in some areas, we made it a ceremony of asking for their hand back and put out a carpet and ask them if they will, if, if they can come back to us. And it was quite beautiful to see that. And so having, you know, rituals and really valuing the people that are there, even though it is a tough time, I think really helps. That's great. I want to pivot a little bit and go back really to you personally. So what's important to you and how do you define success? Yeah, and I think this has evolved, you know, on a vulnerable basis. I think you, if you ask a person graduating from business school in 1996, as we did, um, the list was probably different. I'm going to be a billionaire baron. I'm going to go and start this great company and do X, Y, and Z. You know, I, I feel fortunate that I've had a good career and I've been able to build my own self-confidence such that I think I can act more selflessly now than I did in the past. And so for me, you know, I tell my kids this, which is that um, I have privilege. They have privilege. Our job is to give a VC return on the privilege we have to the world. So if I have one unit of privilege, VC returns are 10x. So how are you going to give back 10x? And that's really what's important to me now is to figure out how I can return the gifts that I've been given that are there. And I think the areas that um, I've been passionate about since 2006, I have been uh, deeply concerned and moved by the climate crisis that we're in. And it started with I was focused around how can I help on awareness? This was when I was a venture capitalist. And I looked at even things like I, I commissioned a Facebook game and helped produce it so that it was like a Sim City where people would uh, play this game and the, the environment would degrade and little critters you would see would have sad faces unless you take real world carbon saving actions and you would take your camera phone back in those days and upload it. It didn't work, but I tried and uh, went back to being a venture capitalist. But then I thought about, okay, 
how can I impact it? I'm a consumer person. I've invested in consumer. I've started consumer companies. What are the consumer problems that can really help with climate? And that's how I, I came across what is now Lyft. And I thought, okay, transportation is one of the top sources of carbon emissions. More and more people are moving into cities. It is very inefficient that 75 plus percent of rides are alone when there's four seats. So why can't we use the internet to match people? And that's where Lyft started a Zimride, which was basically a ride board, like a job board. And then it evolved into day-to-day -day need of transportation versus I just need to go to San Francisco to LA every so often. So I, I invested in Lyft because I thought it was a, an excellent inter, intersection between making a difference in climate, network effects in marketplaces, and it was a real commercial opportunity to do that. So to me, the work has just begun on climate. My job now at Lyft is really focused on how do we take what we have and create it into a self-driving, electric, shared network of vehicles. And the self-driving will be safer and cheaper. The electric will be cleaner for the environment and shared will be less congestion. So all those elements together. So I feel like I'm fortunate that I can um, work on what I think is still a very big and important mission and do it at a place where I know people, I love the people that I'm with and that really have the same values and care about this. We just announced recently that we're going to 100% of our vehicles, even if they're driver owned, will be electric by 2030, come hell or high water. So that mission to me is, is super important and, and gives me that excitement. And, and it's been tough. There's tough times at work. There's tough times during the pandemic. But when you have that, it allows you to keep putting that one foot after the other, um, that there's a broader goal um, in doing it. There's a, another area which is just around COVID that's also important to me. And this is more recent and more personal. So um, mid-March, I was with some people that you know, Dino, uh, meeting up in, in, uh, in Colorado for a weekend. I think that was the weekend right before it just all seemed to have gone down. We found ourselves <clears throat> trying to social distance as the weekend unfolded because we realized we're sitting on a crisis. And there were people from Europe, there were people from New York, there were people from all over um, in there. So I brought back home uh, COVID and was tested positive uh, a few days later. And um, it was a very scary experience, um, especially in mid-March. There was really a lot of unknown around what was going to happen. And uh, I think. Uh, I was lucky that uh, I did not experience severe respiratory sy symptoms, but I did experience other symptoms that were there, fatigue and the loss of taste and smell, um, fever, coughs, aches. I think the hardest part in going through that was the emotional toll of waking up every morning and wondering if it's going to be worse yeah. and not knowing what's going to happen the next day. And it took me 40 days until I tested COVID negative. So it was quite a long journey with it. I realized also that there were just a few other people that had it that were scared to talk about it. And so I just posted on Facebook and said, Hey, I've got it. Um, if you want to, if you need emotional support, I'm here because I've gone through this for at the time it was about 15 or 20 days, but I think I'm on the other side and I want to help. And then I got an outpouring of people in Silicon Valley that were trying to help with testing. And they sent me all sorts of serological tests for immunity, for antibodies, and other things to try. And I started to think about this problem. And I thought, okay, so 
I'm a marketplace person. I just explained how I did this with Lyft. This seems like a marketplace problem that we've got to solve this pandemic quickly, but it's going to require a lot of research and a lot of trials. And they're really uh, highly sought, you know, COVID positive people are highly sought after. And at the time, there weren't that many. And so I looked online and did not find any good resources that were simple and easy for consumers to sign up. And I found an outpouring of desire for consumers to make a difference. So that's where um, I talked to my wife, who's a doctor about this, and, and we both had this idea of let's put together a registry. I reached out to my network and uh, another HBS grad, Jennifer Fonstad, said there's a company that does this for other diseases. Maybe they could help. And it's called Clara Health. And so we ended up within two weeks putting together a nonprofit, a free registry, where you can come on. We ask a few questions. Whether you're COVID positive, negative, or untested, we'll find trials that you match with and that you can enroll in instantly. Um, and they could be trials that are observational, or they could be trials that are interventional, meaning that you uh, take some sort of medicine if you have a condition or not a condition. And uh, what I was surprised to see was that we have now 1,400 trials. We need over 20 million volunteers. And what I'm also surprised to see is that about 80% of trials are delayed because of patient participation. And I just spoke to a researcher at John Hopkins who's doing a lot of work around plasma, and I've been donating plasma too. And he said that we are really at risk because we don't have the right volunteers right now. So um, this is another purpose that is important to me and that I'm spending time on. If you want to learn more about World Without COVID or are interested in participating in a study, you can find them on the web at worldwithoutcovid.org. And now we return to my conversation with Raj. What's your leadership style? Like, how, how do you manage people? What do you, you know, when you think about it? You know, it's evolved. I don't think it was that good early on. <laughs> and I hope it's gotten better. I would say the parts that, uh, that I stuck with, and I can talk about some of my mistakes too as a leader. Um, but the parts that I think have, have worked are being direct, setting clear goals, and being involved at the right time, but not all the time. So brainstorming, letting the team go, coming back, helping out to remove obstacles, really being a support and a coach and taking the back seat versus the front seat. I think when I first started venture capital and I was used to being the CEO of a startup, for several years, I probably got feedback from entrepreneurs saying, smart person, but I don't need someone in the front seat with me. <laughs> and uh, this guy seems like he wants to be in the front seat. So I learned the hard way uh, after losing some deals that um, I had to become a coach. And part of that is just becoming confident of yourself. Because a lot of times when you try to be in the front seat along with an entrepreneur, it's because you have your own insecurity that you need to prove that you are smart. You need to speak. You need to tell people what to do. You mentioned earlier that when you sold your last venture, you know, maybe some vulnerability stories that maybe this is a good time to share some of those. Yeah. So, you know, I had started, um, my second business that I started was called FitMob. And it was, in short, a fitness marketplace. And we were trying to really invert 
the whole uh, industry of fitness where it was about signing up to a piece of real estate, a gym, and never going and paying them. And what we wanted you to do is sign up to a, a, an amazing person and a tribe of people, a mob of people, and you would be together to achieve your goals. And the place was fungible. You could work out anywhere in the neighborhood. What we found was exciting vision didn't work. Too complex. Couldn't get the uh, trainers to really be entrepreneurs. They wanted the certainty of an hourly rate, as an example. And we had to pivot. We looked at what else was out there, and we found this other company that had pivoted into, and it was called ClassPass, and it pivoted to basically being more like open table and filling up spots in existing classes right, rather than trying to create classes, create new inventory. And uh, it was a lot easier to scale. And there was a need because there was a class, it was a yoga class, it was only half full consistently, and they would be willing to bring other people in at a lower rate, and people wanted to buy classes cheaper, so if you could package it in the right way, it's a no-brainer. It, it works. And it did work. It took off. So we copied them, and uh, we pivoted into a model that worked. We were more West Coast focused. They were more East Coast focused, but they had started a year before. And we grew, they grew, and it was a cutthroat battle. And it felt a lot like Uber and Lyft, which I saw at the same time. But it was a smaller market, and it was a lot more damaging, and it didn't feel like there was going to be two big players the way that Uber and Lyft did. It didn't feel like it was going to be a duopoly. So I was speaking to my counselor, who's also my lawyer, but he's also a really good um, advisor in general. And he said, look, I think you need to combine. And the only way that you're going to do that is if you swallow your pride, and even though you have more experience and you were a VC and you started a successful company, and you just need to go and tell her, the founder, that you copied her and that you think that this is the right way to do it rather than the both of you wasting a lot of time and energy trying to fight each other for a smaller piece of, of a smaller pot. How was that conversation? You know, it was hard. Uh, I had to let my ego go, and I went there and I talked to her, and it was a huge elephant in the room. And as soon as I said it, like, look, you did a great model and we copied you. She was able to just relax and be her authentic self. And I was able to be my authentic self. And we talked more about how we can go do this together rather than trying to fight about who was right and who was wrong. And did you have to basically seize control of the whole joint thing? And that was the other piece, which is I am ready for, I, I want you to lead this and I'll do whatever it takes to make this joint company successful. And it was tough because I had to then effectively work and commute to New York from San Francisco and did that for six months and helped out. And it was hard because we were competitors. And so walking in the office for the first few weeks felt more like you were a competitor walking in than people on the same team. And building trust was even harder. The company now is doing well. You know, I moved on. But uh, there's a number of people that are still there that are thriving from the FitMob days. As you were telling this story, it struck me that you've gone from being a CEO for a number of ventures to, you know, in this situation, you were no longer like the number one person. And even at Lyft, you are, you know, the founders are. How was that shift in role for somebody who was so used to be like the main leader? Yeah, I would say that um, it's really good that I did that class pass experience before I came to Lyft. 
<laughs> and it's good that I um, got some of that harsh feedback as a venture capitalist because it helped me understand that um, you don't need to be the one always in front or right to have impact and, and really to experience, con to be content. I think I, I came into Lyft with a different perspective, but I'd still say, look, Lyft is a, grew at a, at a pretty rapid clip that I didn't expect and is a much larger company now. So I'm constantly reinventing myself that way too and still receive feedback that I, I, I could have done better in certain areas. So now it really, I'm getting more and more comfortable about being the coach and, um, and, and having the team run and realizing that, um, you know, the, that the success and the happiness that you feel is going to come from within you versus from external gratification. So taking all these experiences, are there like two or three tips that you could leave for our listeners? Yeah. You know, I think the last year and a half have been years of introspection for me. I, I attended something called the Hoffman process, which is uh, a retreat for about eight days where you go deep into yourself and you really get to understand what is the authentic you and what are the, your patterns that you inherited from people like your parents and how can you separate that out and not be your patterns and how can you be a better person? There are always things that we do that we're, we're not happy about doing that personal work is the fundamental basis that will then allow you to have great relationships whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's a family relationship, whether it's a work relationship, I've just seen it reverberate in so many ways. So it's first tip is actually yourself, which is do the work. It, however you want to do it. It doesn't have to be this. It could be something else. could be meditation. Whatever it is, try to connect and, and do that. Two, I would say, is if you can have that sense of vulnerability it means that you will be comfortable hiring people better than you, which means that you will ultimately be successful in almost anything you do. The minute that you make yourself the rate limiter on everything because you feel insecure is when your odds of success go down. Yeah, these are great thoughts. So I want to go sort of to a more on the personal non-work related side. We talked about the fact that you have a passion for music and I know you were in Indianapolis at in business school, and then you mentioned, I think you're in a band right now. How has your, how have your outside passions influenced how you show up at work? I think ever since I was in college, I and somehow from friends inherited the mantra of work hard, play hard. And I am content when my authentic self is more than just work. It's about, uh, there's a level of introspection, which is more recent, but there's also a level of extroversion that gives me fuel. Everyone gets fueled in a different way. When I'm on stage and I'm jumping around and I'm singing, it's a flow moment for me. And I'm sure, Dina, you've experienced that performing and playing music too. It is a moment of flow where nothing else matters. You're just caught in the moment. And um, as I do more internal work, I realize that you know the great people that are on their path to enlightenment are the ones that can actually take every moment to be in flow. I'm not there, but I know that music gets me there. Having those outside interests, including things like fitness and, and enjoying the outdoors, all add up together to be important. I, I, I don't think for me I, that being a one-track person in, in one particular area 
is what brings that happiness. It's the integrated whole. And I think that that's not the recipe for everyone. I think you got to find your own. Yeah. So that I completely agree with you on all of this. Two final quick questions. The one I call this the bullshit detector. And like every era has a business lingo. You know, when we were in business school, it was all about downsizing and uh, integration. And there were like all this keywords. What are some of the keywords from this era that have been overused? And then we hear them, you're like, ugh. Yeah, um, probably synergy. It's an excuse to take two suboptimal organizations and think you're going to create something better. When in fact, a lot of success, especially in creative fields and innovation fields, are about small groups of people doing amazing things. It's about leveraging technology, which is a big lever. And so it's less about, well, if we just combined AOL and Time Warner, we could take over the world. Yeah, that's a good word. And then finally, um, I have a question that closes the interview and I call it either food for your body or food for your soul. So if you want to share with us either if it's food for your body, a favorite food or drink, or if it's food for your soul, a, you know, art, music, novel, something that it's really important to you and why. Yeah, I would. I want to share the food for the soul because I think, again, in the last year and a half, it's been more of a focus for me. And as I mentioned, flow, being in the moment, um, an audiobook, and I, and I say audiobook because I really like his voice that has had profound impact on me is Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. And um, it first takes getting used to, but once you listen to it, maybe two times, three times, um, you realize that you can live, you, there, we have the potential to have bliss in every single moment, whether it's on this podcast, it's looking at the tree, whatever it is. So that's the food I offer your audience. Thank you so much, Raj. Um, we're going to close this. Raj Kapoor from Lyft. Is there anything else that you'd like uh, to make sure that people know about you? Or we will, I will have the links for World Without COVID.org in the, in the podcast, in the page of the site when it launches? No, I think that's, you know, uh, we have uh, a short-term challenge and it just takes a few minutes to sign up. And what I would appreciate if any listener here could just pass it on to a few more people. Um, I think we can make a difference. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating or review, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. If you like music, stick around. After the credits, I am going to share one of my personal passions. I happen to be married to one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Catania, and I will share one of her songs at the end of every episode. You can find me online at al4ep.com. That's with the number four. Um, I can be reached by email at dino, spelled D-I-N-O like a dinosaur, at al4ep.com The show was recorded and produced by myself. The theme song was written, produced, arranged and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo who also played drums and keyboards and with Tony Saurino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Okay, so the first song that I'm going to share by Susan is called Work Hard, Love Harder 
It's a powerful but simple song that expresses many feelings that are in line with the spirit of the show. So enjoy the song and hopefully you will listen to many more episodes. Thank you very much again and have a great rest of your day. Thank you.